This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Covaris, Ranchford Eye Center, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be back with you for a live program. As many of you know, I've been on the road quite a bit, uh, giving talks and working at events. Matter of fact, last week I was at Los Angeles. I was in Los Angeles at the Staples Center for the Professional Bull Riders Association, and it was amazing so you have a sport, a Western sport like bull riding, but when it gets to a big city like Madison Square Garden in January or Los Angeles, sells out the arenas. I mean, sold out for three days. It was really amazing. And here at the University of Connecticut now, we are really pioneering how to make these sports safer. So athletes have been flying in to have evaluations at our facility and really accumulate data and look at them and try to advise them as far as their futures in the sport. So it's really been fun from that standpoint. I don't know if folks have, have flown lately. Uh, flying is continues to get worse. And the latest one, I was on a, a flight. I won't mention the airline, but it's kind of like getting on Noah's Ark. Okay. I, I I'm these Service animals that are there to provide you to be calm when takeoff and landing, it's getting out of control. It really is. I think several airlines have really started to restrict it to truly service animals. Uh, I work a lot with the Fidelco Guide Dog Foundation. These are animals that train for years to be in those situations. And it's clear that people are just bringing their pets on of any variety. So it is kind of interesting as you're sitting there and people are walking down the aisle with a variety of different, mostly dogs, uh, but people bringing other animals on. So um, it's really started to degenerate even more. I want to give everybody a follow-up. In uh, one of the conversations we had, it was about physicians who retire in the state of Connecticut. We talked a little bit about physicians who retire. Uh, A third of all our physicians here in Connecticut are over the age of 50. When they retire, you have to buy a thing called a tail, tail insurance to cover your whole practice so that if you are sued later on during retirement, you're covered. Typically you purchase that, but many companies out of loyalty to the being with the company, and actually you pay for it, you pay a little bit of an inflated rate, uh, you'll get a free tail. But you have to retire and stop working. It includes volunteer work. So in the sense that if you were going to do a volunteer job, say, I'm not, I don't want any money, I want to go teach residents in a clinic one day a week, or I want to go work at a free clinic, you still have to buy your license, which is $585, and in some cases, it doesn't apply to a free tail. You would now have to purchase the tail for around $20,000. So anyhow, we, we found out. I explored this further because I had a friend who was in this, and we found a company, um, MD Advantage uh, Malpractice Insurance, and they said that this physician can continue to – he could be with them for a year – 
and work for a year. And at the end of that year, they would give him a tale dating back to his practice that began in 1980, and he could volunteer. So uh, there was a solution to that. So we really need to work on these things because we want to keep physicians active even though they're retiring early. And physicians tend to want to volunteer their time. So it would be a great thing and a great solution to that. Uh, later on on the show, my guest here in the studio is going to be Dr. Adam Lindsay. Dr. Lindsay is an orthopedic surgeon who specializes in orthopedic oncology. So basically, he treats benign and malignant tumors of bone and soft tissue. A fascinating field. And uh, I'm sure people are going to be glued to this because, you know, it used to be, well, they amputate the limb. But that's not the case anymore. And some of the things that Dr. Lindsay does are very very interesting, and he's a colleague of mine over at Yukon uh, Health in the Department of Orthopedics. March 2nd, 1841, this day in medicine, uh, Dr. Adolf Ponch, P-A-N-S-C-H, was a German-born physician, and he was born on in 1841. He was an anatomist, but in 1869, he went on an expedition to the North Pole. I can't imagine doing that. I mean, in 1869, and it really brings to mind physicians as explorers. So many want to explore not just medicine. I think the, the inclination of going into medicine these days and not just being a physician, physical therapists, uh, nurses, it, it's the idea that you get to explore and experience something new. And I think it applied to many physicians back then and even today um, when you look at astronauts, right? We had a major blast this week, uh, actually this morning, um, with SpaceX, and I think uh, you'll see more and more physicians who want to go into space. Something that we're hearing more and more about is homeostasis. We've talked about it on this program. There's a whole neuroscience behind homeostasis. Understand, homeostasis, the human body, human well-being, really requires the maintenance of energy stores, water, sodium, your body gets used to a schedule. Your body wants to eat, drink, and sleep at the same time every day, which we know isn't possible. But your brain has to regulate that function. When you start sending it, when you disrupt that, right, like with sleep disorders or if you're going on daylight savings time as we are next week, uh, travel, dietary changes, you have to be mindful of these disruptors and account for that. The reason I bring it up is we're going on daylight savings time next week. Important to get enough sleep and to adjust your sleep schedule to that. So sometimes you have to do this, right? You, you have to travel. Athletes do this all the time and really have to regulate themselves for that travel and try to make up for it. Uh, I'm still puzzled why we have daylight saving time or Eastern Standard Time. We should just decide what we want to do and stay there and probably keep everybody healthy because we also know that the number of heart conditions and heart attacks go up as we start changing clocks. Aerobic exercise improves executive function. Another article came out about this. We've talked about it on the program before, and I think it's important to drive this home. This study uh, was done and published in Neurology. It's adults age 60, to, uh, not Neurology, it was at JAMA, uh, but adults age 
20 to 67 participated in a study from 2011 to 2016. It was done at Columbia University. 132 people participated. And what they were required to do is they had to exercise four times a week for six months. One group did 10 to 15 minutes of warm-up and then 30 to 40 minutes of actual workout. The other group just did stretching exercises for that period of time. What they found was that the people who did the aerobic exercise four times a week for 40 minutes improved their executive function, their ability to make decisions and think clearly through a problem. What was also interesting was the biggest gain was seen in older people. So the older you were in this study, the more gain you had. They actually went to the point where on MRI, they were able to measure the size of the brain's cortex, right? The thinking part of the brain, the outside lining of the brain, those cells, and they found that it got thicker. So again, it drives us home with good evidence to show that aerobic exercise at any age makes a huge difference in terms of our ability to think further and avoid cognitive disorders. Next up, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Adam Lindsay. I'm going to give you the phone numbers now, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. Now, if you don't want to call in but you have a question, you could reach me at info at alessimd.com. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and we're visiting today. Our guest here in the studio is Dr. Adam Lindsay. Dr. Lindsay is an orthopedic surgeon at UConn Health at the UConn Musculoskeletal Institute. And uh, he specializes in orthopedic oncology. So basically benign and malignant tumors of bone and soft tissue. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's, it's great to be here. I'm really excited. Thanks. So orthopedic oncology, interesting field. Uh, we don't hear a lot about it. How did you, what's your education like? How did you get to this point? Because I got a feeling it took a lot of years. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a long road that's for sure. So I, um, you know, it's four, year, four years of college, and you go on to an orthopedic residency, which is uh, five years uh, for most people. Um, and then once you're nearing the end of uh, your orthopedic residency, you make a decision on what sort of subspecialty um, you want to go into. So uh, that's a, a one- or two-year fellowship for most uh, orthopedic oncology fellowships. So that's I did one year down at the University of Florida, um, and that's that's the road. Well, what was interesting is I also saw in on your CV you spent some time in China, and you minored in Asian studies in college. So, what made you want to do that, and what was it like uh, going to China? Because you were in you were done with medical school, right at that point? Correct. Yeah. Okay. What was that like? Uh, it was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. It was really a coincidence that I had that that minor uh, in East Asian studies. 
it, it actually uh, was, was useful in my trip to Beijing. So that was a two year, two year, uh, I'm sorry, two week fellowship. Uh, so a quick, fairly quick trip over to Beijing to a, a hospital called the Jishuitan Hospital, uh, which uh, serves a population of 100 million people. Uh, they have 20 orthopedic oncologists. 20 uh, orthopedic oncologists. 20 orthopedic oncologists. So just to give you a reference, the busiest cancer centers here in the United States, such as uh, MD Anderson or Memorial Sloan Kettering or Dana-Farber, will maybe have four, maybe five orthopedic oncologists on staff. This hospital has 20 orthopedic oncologists. So, um, and, and doing uh, the, the type of tumors that I'll see five or six times a year, they're doing on a weekly weekly basis. Um so it was just a, a fascinating uh, trip uh, to really learn more about orthopedic oncology over there, but also just about their healthcare system. So, well, okay, we're going to take a sidetrack here. Can you <laughs> enlighten us a little bit for somebody who has been there? Because I know very little about it, and I don't think a lot of Americans know much about it. So, what is the care like? I mean, orthopedic twenty orthopedic oncologists. So, are people getting good care? Does their system work? You know, I, I, I again, I was there for two weeks at a highly specialized hospital in the middle of Beijing, and so I, I think I obviously had a biased kind of, uh, of experience. But they, uh, yeah, the, the the surgeons are phenomenal. There's incredible technology that they have at their fingertips. Um, they're doing incredibly complicated surgery uh, and making it look easy at this hospital. But I think the truth is, is that if you leave Beijing, if you go out into the country, there's great disparities in care. Um, and so it's a, a socialized medicine uh, that's been established for over a decade. Uh, but by, by no means is it, um, uh, I'd say, it, that, that you're guaranteed the care that you would get uh, here in the United States if you have the money and you have the access and the family support to get into one of these highly specialized centers in one of the big cities, then you're going to get access uh, to great care. Uh, but I'd say the vast majority of the population can't do that. So you mentioned an interesting thing. So if you have money, you get access to a specialized hospital, but it's not a private hospital. It's it's a, it's owned by the government? Uh, no, these were – well, this was the, the hospital I was at. Um, I think they have private institutions. They also have academic institutions. Right. This is an academic institution that was affiliated with the government. So, yeah, in, in that sense, it's, it's somewhat similar uh, to the United States. But just to give you an example, so if you come to my office and you need an X-ray, we, we walk you over 20 feet to an X-ray uh, suite, and you get your X-ray taken, and you walk right back, and I have those images pulled up electronically, and I can show them to you. There, if you need an x-ray, you have to go somewhere outside of the hospital, pay out of pocket just to get the x-ray, bring it into the surgeon with your family, and hopefully it's the correct imaging sequence or imaging technique, and, and then they'll make a decision. So it, there's, if you need an implant, so you need a knee replacement implant, you have to go and find that implant and purchase it, um, pay for it, and, and bring it in separately. So um, the ability to get the, the, the highly specialized care that we have here is, is much more convoluted there. Yeah, and you know that's interesting. People don't understand. It's actually similar in Haiti. When I work in Haiti, uh, if you if somebody needs an X-ray uh, and like a, a scan of some type, they have to go out and buy it and then bring it back. Uh, so uh, very interesting because I think a lot of people are thinking, well, it's going to be socialized here, everything's going to be free, and you're going to get the same care that we have now. And I think I maintain that our current system is probably more socialized than anything else, but. We'll move on. Why did, why did you choose oncology, Adam? Yeah, it, it's a great question. So I, you know, I started um, 
I'm the only person in my family ever to, to go into medicine, even extended family. So that the whole whole uh, trip, this whole pathway has kind of been figuring it out as we go along. Um, but, you know, it, it, in college, I finally figured out I wanted to go to medical school in my senior year of college. So I made that decision and applied to medical schools. And a year later, was was lucky enough to get in. And then in medical school, you kind of figure out that you want to do something surgical. Uh, and I, I really fell into the path of orthopedic surgery. And then in orthopedic residency, I had the uh, ability to rotate at Mass General Hospital. And uh, the field of orthopedic oncology has only existed for maybe 30 or 40 years uh, as a real discipline. And, and a lot of it uh, started out of Mass General Hospital. Uh, so I was lucky enough to, to kind of get steeped in that tradition a little bit and see some of that experience. Uh, and it really uh, stuck with me. And it, it was pretty clear after those rotations, taking care of those cancer patients, that this is what I wanted to do uh, with my life. What are some of the common conditions that you treat? Yeah, well, it, you know, it's it, it, that's kind of what, what makes my practice unique is that there's there's nothing common. I, I teach residents, so I have a, a fourth year orthopedic surgery resident who spends ten weeks with me. At, so I always have one resident with me, and what I, I basically tell them is that we're not going to see anything routine in your ten weeks on on this rotation. Every patient that comes into my office can present with something that um, potentially we've never seen. Uh, before there's sure. so I see a lot of strange um, diagnoses, rare conditions. Um, on top of that, too, though, and, and, and fortunately, bone tumors, bone cancers in general are rare things. So a big part of my practice too is just is, is uh, some general orthopedic surgery. So I do hip replacements, I do fracture surgery, taking care of broken bones, um, and those sorts of things too. A lot of times when we these tumors are found in children. So I noticed on your CV you also work at Connecticut Children's Medical Center. How many, how big, uh, what percentage of your practice are children? Yeah, so I'd say about 15 to 20% of my, my patients are pediatric patients. So I provide orthopedic oncology services at uh, Connecticut Children's Medical uh, Center. I'm the only physician there doing that. Um, so that's a, a portion of my practice, but really you know, a big, big part of my, I wouldn't be happy if that wasn't part of my practice. It's, yeah, it's really, what I'm really passionate about. Yeah, yeah. makes it very interesting. Um, we're going to take a short break. Uh, my guest today is Dr. Adam Lindsay. Let me give you the phone numbers again, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. Uh, you can get us with any questions. Dr. Lindsay is a specialist in orthopedic surgery and specifically orthopedic oncology. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today we are chatting with Dr. Adam Lindsay. Dr. Lindsay, so for everybody's information, is at the University of Connecticut in the uh, Musculoskeletal Institute. If you need an appointment, the phone number, 860-679-6600. Uh, we're going to take a question. We have uh, Tim on the line from Farmington. Tim, you're on. I think uh, greetings, Dr. Lessie and uh, Dr. Uh, Lindsay. Uh, Tim Pedrotti here. I don't know if you recall me. You've got so many patients. But uh, last January, 13 months ago, you uh, operated on... Uh, my leg, I was listening to you, you said lots of patients present unique cases. Well, I showed up with a tumor in my uh, left hamstring, 
that you said uh, was about the size of a small football, and you said, wow, it's rare when we get tumors that large. But uh, you removed it, uh, and you did an awesome job. My leg's fine, so if I can put in a plug for Dr. Lindsay, I would highly recommend him. He is first-class doctor. Was, the experience was wonderful. Thank you. Well, Tim, thank you for calling, and, and best of luck with your recovery. <laughs> yeah, it's Take- been uh, very speedy, so... Great. Uh, thanks for that. Also, I didn't realize that you were in China for a while. I lived in Hong Kong for two years and had, with my family, two young kids, and uh, had a little experience with some Chinese hospitals, so I was interested to hear your comments there. And, yes, we're all uh, very fortunate to have uh, Yukon and uh, doctors like you right in our backyard. So, Well, uh, thank you. Thanks for calling, Tim. Yeah, here's my question. Okay. I have a... I have a close family member who was uh, diagnosed with multiple myeloma a few years ago, and uh, he's been doing fine battling that, but recently broke a bone. And um, my question really is, I understand that um, a bone cancer like that can interfere with bone healing and bone repair, and I just wondered if I could uh, get your comment on uh, cases requiring a bone healing and the impact that uh, multiple myeloma uh, would have on, on uh, interfering with that. Great, Tim. I'm going to hang up, and we're going to get to it right now. Thanks for calling. Thank Interesting. So uh, in the case of bone cancer in general, I guess I have a question first. For, for Tim, you know, in Tim's case, how do people – what are the symptoms they come in with that – do they just feel the tumor, or how do they know they have a tumor in soft tissue? Yeah, well, first, it's great to hear from you, Tim. Um, I'm, I'm glad you're doing doing well. I'm glad everything turned out well. So most people, so Tim had a, a soft tissue mass. So this is not a mass in the bone. This is a mass in the muscle. Uh, and and uh, most people with those kind of tumors, whether they're benign or malignant, uh, will actually present just by noticing the mass palpable. A lot of times these are painless masses. Every once in a while they'll be pushing on an important structure like a nerve that'll give them some pain or numbness or tingling uh, or on a tendon or something else that gives gives you some pain. But a lot of for a lot of people these are painless enlarging masses and they just feel the lump or bump. You realize right now a lot of our listeners are feeling their arms and legs. Yeah, I, I really w- was worried about that. I don't. I want you to understand these are very rare things that, that I deal with, and uh, and and uh, so you, nobody should get get nervous. But um, but that's that's how they present. Um, and then to, to get to your question about myeloma, so myeloma is a, a fascinating uh, cancer uh, that is we've made a lot of great strides with, and not from the surgical side of things, from the chemotherapy side of things. It used to be a orthopedic surgeon's worst nightmare because myeloma chews holes in bones. It's a it's a it's a cancer of the bones, really the bone marrow, and can cause large destructive lesions in the bones, which cause pain. Bones can break uh, and can be very difficult and challenging to treat um, surgically. But but we've seen great strides um, from the chemotherapy side of treatment, from the medical side of treatment, even stem cell transplants for some of these patients that can achieve cure. Uh, so a lot of myeloma patients are managed well 
uh, with medications. But they do still have destructive bone lesions that need uh, to be treated surgically. And, and the answer is, is that it's complicated, but yes, you can heal a fracture through a myeloma lesion, uh, but we usually we are going to offer some other treatments, whether that's chemotherapy treatments or radiation treatments, or sometimes a surgical treatment to help uh, help the healing along. Adam, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when somebody had a tumor of a bone, it meant amputation. You know, that was it. Tumor, amputation. And I noticed that you're now a, a member of the International Society of Limb Salvage. Can you explain that and maybe talk a little bit about some of the techniques you use to preserve a limb that has cancer? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, a, a, a malignant cancer, a, a cancer of the bone years ago, um, primarily affecting children was, was a, a death sentence. This is 40, 50 years ago. It was primarily just treated with surgery, which which you are absolutely correct would be an amputation. Uh, and then and then what happened in the 70s is they figured out that chemotherapy could prolong these people's lives and uh, these children's lives and um, and potentially cure them. And, and so then as we found that chemotherapy was working better and better, what we started to do is experiment a little bit on how we can take bones out of the body and do something to replace them. Um, and, and not amputate the leg. So if you can remove the bone with the tumor in it and save the arteries and nerves and muscles and skin in the leg, you can do something to salvage that limb. And the most common way we've been doing that is to put in a metal uh, replacement bone, essentially. Um, there's also an option of, of taking bone from a cadaver. So somebody who's passed away will donate their, their body and uh, will process that bone. And so you could take a a bone from their body and put it in into your patient's uh, body, um, and then uh, you know, things have gotten even more complicated than that. And so, the International Society of Limb Salvage, just to answer that question, these medical societies sometimes get a little carried away. It seems like every small subspecialty in medicine develops a society, and and they're important for various reasons. The International Society of Limb Salvage is really the biggest worldwide. Um, Society for Orthopedic Oncologists. And we have a meeting every other year um, that rotates all around the world. So a, g- a great chance to meet um, physicians from overseas um, and, and to travel around the world uh, and hear how people are managing these, these quite complex problems um, uh, in different countries. So, Adam, I guess it's one of the things we don't think of with organ donation, right? We're always pushing people to organ, but we always hear about heart, lungs, uh, kidneys and big deals, but I think what you're telling us is by donating your body, your bone could be so crucial to helping someone else. Absolutely, and it, and it's not just for for the cancer side of things. In fact, it's, that's a rare use of of what's um, what, what's donated. A lot of common things like tendons. So if you rupture your ACL, one option is to have a tendon taken from a cadaver, or um, you know, there's various things where we need to do bone grafting, and we'll actually take portions of bone from. So those are the more, more common things. Getting fractures that heal using bone graft, we can take bone from um, from a cadaver from a donated uh, specimen. Uh, so I I get what you said about replacing bone. Take the tumor out. You have a gap. You put a rod in or some artificial thing. Okay, what happens when the child grows? Right, so if you replace a big bone like a femur, um, take the tumor out, replace it with either a bone or a shaft of some type, 
What happens as that child gets older? It, that's a great question. One of our biggest challenges. So, so bone cancers, cancers that start in bone are rare, very rare. Uh, it just happens, unfortunately, that they affect children disproportionately. So there's probably about uh, 500 pediatric bone cancers diagnosed in the United States annually. So that's that's rare. That's wow. not a common disorder. But you know, one of the to get to your question, one of the main issues we have is what to do with these these children as they're growing. It just happens the most common site that we see these bone cancers is in what we call the distal femur, which is your thigh bone right above the knee. And that also happens to be where you get most of your growth in your body, where you get most of your height. So it's a real challenge if we have to remove that part of the bone and that growth center uh, of how we're going to uh, manage what what is going to end up being what we call a leg length discrepancy. So one leg is going to keep growing, and the leg that you operated on is going to be short. So one one trick that we have up our sleeve is a special type of implant. It looks like a femur bone. It's made of metal. It hooks up to a knee replacement, uh, and it but it has in, inside it an internal mechanism that can lengthen. And the way we lengthen is actually with a magnet. So the patient, the child, comes in every three months. Uh, we put them in a magnet. It's just painless. They do it in the office, and in about 20 minutes, we can lengthen them about four to five uh, millimeters. And so we do that until they're done growing, and, and hopefully uh, by the time they're done growing, their their legs are the same length. So I, I guess I have to ask you another question, and that is, how long does it take to do something like that? I mean, how many hours are you in the OR doing a procedure like that, replacing the knee and now replacing the bone with uh, with with a metal shaft? It's a great question. It, it, it can vary on the uh, on where the tumor is, how big the tumor is, how complicated it is to remove it. But I'd say on average, we're looking at a couple hours to remove the tumor to do the cancer surgery. And then comes the reconstruction. How do we put that leg back together? And that can take us uh, upwards of a couple hours as well. But certainly had surgeries that last upwards of eight, nine, 10 hours sometimes. Wow, my goodness. Um, we're talking with Dr. Adam Lindsay from UConn Health, and he is at the Musculoskeletal Institute. Uh, we're chatting about orthopedic oncology, bone tumors and tumors of soft tissue. Uh, we're going to get into our last segment. We'll take a short break, and then we're going to be back with Dr. Lindsay because we want to talk a little bit about the future. What's coming down the road in terms of treatment of these bone cancers? You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and we're in our final segment with Dr. Adam Lindsay, who is an orthopedic oncologist. Um, so we talked a little bit about current treatments, uh, but what are the things that we're going to start seeing in terms of the future and treatment? We Do you get pretty good outcomes? I mean, let's talk about that. I mean, we used to think, okay, bone tumor, Mets, whatever, the next thing was your demise. And I think that's changed a lot now in your field. Yeah, and, and I, I wish I could take credit for some of that change, but I think we have to give a lot of that credit to, to the medical oncologists, especially, you know, we, we've kind of been talking a little bit about childhood tumors, uh, which are treated with surgery and chemotherapy traditionally. But also, you know, a big part of my practice is taking care of folks 
um, who are later in life who develop a cancer, say, in their lung or their breast or their kidney or prostate that then spreads to the bone. And that's, that's a much more prevalent problem than these, these uh, children with cancers. And so that's a big part of my practice as well. And what we're seeing more and more, like we kind of touched on with myeloma, is that as these chemotherapy treatments improve, cancer in the bone is also being treated by that chemotherapy. And so it's, that, I think, is the real future, the hope. As much as I'd like to have the job security, the hope is that we, we get these uh, cancers treated with chemotherapy and that once they've spread to the bone, that, that nobody really needs a, a surgery for them. Um, but, you know, it, from the surgical standpoint, where we do see uh, hopefully the future is, is less invasive techniques for these patients. If you have a cancer diagnosis and it's unfortunately spread to your bone, you know, the last thing you really want to be going through is, is surgery. Uh, operation and, and all the recovery that comes with that. So if we can do things to make these procedures less invasive, smaller incisions, smaller, uh, less invasive techniques to stabilize bones so that they don't break and they're not painful and people can get on with their cancer treatment, then that's that's really our goal for the future. Uh, do we start seeing more of these in older life now? Uh, are you seeing more older patients presenting with uh, tumors as we live longer? Absolutely, yeah. So so we're seeing that um, I think the incidence in general of cancer spreading to the bone is on a slight rise. And part of that is that because cancer diagnoses in general are getting better managed, better treated with chemotherapies, radiations, uh, targeted therapies, immunotherapies, all these things that are coming out are allowing people to live longer uh, on longer. And, and as part of that, what we see is that, that that's more time that people are living with a cancer diagnosis. And subsequently, probably more of a likelihood that it could spread and, and spread to the bones. And so, um, yeah, that's that's a, a big part of my practice uh, at UConn and, and at Hartford Hospital as well. Uh, with immunotherapies, uh, you know, usually we see this in lung and, and soft tissue masses. Are you seeing bone tumors as well? Yeah, well, in general, you know, what we're, we're, we're not seeing it so much for cancers that begin in bone, but we are seeing it when cancers spread to bone. Okay. So what I tell my patients, if you – have a cancer that's spread to bone. So this is a breast cancer, lung cancer, kidney cancer, spreads to the bone. We really have four treatments that we can offer you. One is chemotherapy or systemic therapy, immunotherapy. And basically, if you kill the cancer throughout your body, you're going to kill it in the bone too. Radiation therapy, so we can give you radiation to the bone to kill that cancer spot. There's a, a class of medications called a bisphosphonate, which we give patients for osteoporosis, also help with bone cancers. And finally, is is what I can offer is is a surgical option to go in and cut that tumor out, or uh, to stabilize the bone around the tumor so that it doesn't cause pain and, and doesn't break. Adam, if there were one thing people need to take away from today's show, what would that be in the field of orthopedic oncology? I mean, the first thing I'd say is, is hopefully this isn't causing anxiety for anybody. These are very rare conditions, um, so I, I hope nobody's feeling around for lumps or bumps right now. Um, <laughs> but you know, it, these are rare conditions. Um, but the you know, there's there's a few of us orthopedic oncologists around. You know, there's only about 700 uh, orthopedic residents that graduate every year and are going into practice as orthopedic surgeons. And of those 700, there's only about 10 uh, orthopedic oncologists or people that, that choose to go into a field of, of oncology, uh, and I'm one of them. But, we, you know, we're around. Uh, we're, we're happy to help um, if, if you need it. Adam, I want to thank you very much for spending time with us today and really for everything you do over at UConn Health and uh, your work 
uh, at Hartford Hospital as well as Connecticut Children's Medical Center. Thank you. Uh, one of the other things I wanted to mention today as we're coming to a close uh, is a couple of things have come up in terms of aging and driving. Um, several articles have come up, and it's become a big issue here in the state of Connecticut. As we get older, we know that we lose our ability to react quickly. And, you know, it's such a hard thing to do to give up your ability to drive a car. Fortunately, we're getting into self-driving vehicles and we're getting into situations where we have Uber and Lyft to get people around as we get older. And there was an article in the New England Journal about this. And I wanted to bring it up because I really want all of us as we get older to start thinking about and planning for the fact that we're not going to be able to drive a vehicle as we get older and to start making plans on where we want to live, where do we want to, what do we want to be near and how we get around because it's, it's heartbreaking even for a physician to sit there and tell someone that you're physically unable to operate a vehicle and you're going to lose your license. So I think you could avoid that by having the conversation, talk to your family, start thinking about it. With that, we're going to wrap up today's show. Uh, many thanks to our studio producer, Mike Oko's on the, on the board today. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. I'm going to be away for a few weeks. I'm be heading down to spring training where I work with the New York Yankees. So what we did was we taped a bunch of programs. And Mikey's going to be here on the board uh, playing those for you uh, with the taped ones. So we won't be taking questions, but uh, you will have a lot of new information to go with. Next up on WTIC is Garden Talk with Len. Please remember to help save lives. You can do that by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Just go to registerme.org. I think today's show brought us some new insight into organ donation. Something we don't think about is donating bone um, to people who have cancer and need extended orthopedic procedures. With that, I wish you all to stay healthy and We'll be chatting again next week. This has been Dr. Anthony Alessi, and you've been listening to WTIC News Talk 1080. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Covaris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.